Well, hey, how are you? Today's a weird day. Do you know what I mean? Like you just wake up some days and just everything is just weird. Today feels like a weird day. Um, but uh, our scripture this morning is going to help us uh, be less weird. So let's, if you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to open up to Psalm 47. We'll be reading from Psalm uh, 47, verses 1 through 9 this morning. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy, for the Lord Most High is awesome, the great King over all the earth. He subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loved. God has ascended amid shouts of joy, the Lord amid the sounding of trumpets. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises, for God is the King of all the earth. Sing to Him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on His holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham, for the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. That's, those are wonderful words, but I have to tell you we're at a little bit of a disadvantage when we read these things and we hear them. And, and there's a reason why we're at this disadvantage. It's because when you think of royalty, what do you think of? I think of, right, the Queen, Prince, Prince Harry, Prince William, all the little like royals, like... I, I think of uh, a former actress who's now a princess. Like, I think of all these different things. And I have to be honest with you. When I think about those things, when I talk about royalty, it does not inspire in me a sense of awe or power. What do they do? They are born into this thing. So therefore, they get it and they go to these events and they wear these certain things, and they don't do this, and they don't do that, but what do they actually do? I'm sure they're lovely people. I have nothing against them personally. But I have a problem if when I read about God being the king, if that's what I think of. I have a problem. Because the writer of this psalm, the the audience of these words as it first came out, do you know what they wanted more than anything else? They wanted God to be king, to lift them up, to put their enemies under their feet. These are people who were surrounded by those who would like to take them over. They were surrounded by those who they had to fight against to have their own nation, their own people. And they relied on God so many times to give them their sense of identity. And they wanted God to be king over all the earth. Because if God was king over all the earth, then they as his people would be raised up. God is the king of all nations. God is above all things. There is no one that sits above him. There is no one higher than him. And this morning, as we hear about God being king, we need to step outside of ourselves for a second. And we need to realize something that we need God to be over all things. 
We need him to sit on his throne above all things. We need him to be over everything. And so therefore, because he is, we get to join and sing praises to him. Every song we have sang this morning is spoken of how God is so great, so big, so mighty, that there is nothing like him, that there is no one like him, that there is nothing that can stand against him. And church, that is not some sort of abstract, happy thought. It is the truth that God is king. That God is king. And he sits on his throne. And he's above all things. Amen? All right, it's time to dismiss our three kids here this morning to Children's Church and Nursery. I think they know where to go. Uh, so we are again uh, getting getting close to closing out our series on the story where we've looked at the Bible as a narrative that tells um, that tells a really really big big story. And um, we asked the question last week, what makes, what makes a good ending to such a big story? Uh, what, what do we want to see happen? And, and we kind of identified some, some very general things. You know, we, uh, we want to see a resolution to the major issues that are going on. Uh, we want all the big questions to be answered. And generally speaking, we would like for there to be some sort of happy ending. Uh, um, where the good guy wins, the bad guy doesn't, and there is some sort of justice or rightness to the ending. You know, when you get to uh, the ending of a book or the ending of a movie, like sometimes the ending just feels right. Like this is what should happen. And that's kind of what we like. And, and we've been following the story um, from the beginning of the Bible to where we are now. And for those of us, again, who have, who have read it, who have paid attention, who who know what the story's about, we, we already know uh, how it's going to end, right? Uh, God is going to win. Satan has lost. And, but in the middle of these two forces that are pushing and pulling is who? Is us, right? We're in the middle of these two forces that are pushing and pulling against one another. And ultimately, in the story... If you think about it, the question that has popped up over and over and over again is what is going to happen with humanity? What Are they going to choose God or are they not going to choose God? And, and what's going to happen when they don't choose God? And as God continues to pursue humanity and go after them and to uh, show them how much he wants to love them and care for them and you see humanity make different choices over and over again, that this this people these people these who we are right in the middle we are the question and we know that god wins and we know that satan loses in the end we know that there is justice and so we look at the book of revelation and it tells us um what is going to happen at the end of the story and the message was given uh, directly to john from god through jesus and it is filled with all of these vivid images and numbers and pictures and all of these different things. Um, and, and if you remember, this is, this is important, uh, that 
One of the reasons why the book of Revelation is so vivid is because John is attempting to describe what cannot be described. He is attempting to tell us about something that we really cannot comprehend. And so, with the, some of the scriptures that we looked at last week, he would say, uh, there was a man who was like this, and his head was like this, and his this was like this, because he can't even really find the words to tell us what it is that he's seeing. And so the images that we end up with with the book of Revelation are just wild, right? They're just wild. Because, again, John is trying to tell us about something that we can hardly wrap our minds around. But we saw some things take place in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. Number one, God's in control and he's been in control all along, right? God's in control, and he's been in control all along. We know that Jesus is returning, and when he returns, that things are going to be set into place, um, whatever those things may be. But here's the thing. When we think about that, we often think about when Jesus returns and things being set right or being set in place, we often think about uh, you know, those who are with God go one place and those who are not with God go another. But we, we, we discovered in the beginning of the book of Revelation that who is the book written to? It's written to who? To churches, to Christians. And we see in the very beginning that what, how this kind of starts out is that it's a warning. It's a warning not to those who don't believe in Jesus. It's a warning to those who do believe in Jesus. Because what is it that God wants in this world? What does he want? If you remember, we have these characters, right? So God, he wants to have a deep relationship with humanity. And Satan is trying to pull us away, have us turn away from God in any way that he can make that happen, right? And so God wants the gospel to go out. He wants the word to go out, that he loves the world, that he sent his son. He wants everyone to hear that, and he wants their lives to be changed. Because hearing about Jesus changes what? Everything. It changes everything. Knowing the love of God in Jesus changes everything. But if the churches, if those who believe in Jesus are not living like Jesus, if they are not loving the people around them, if they are not representing God well, then those who don't know Jesus will never know him. They will never know the deep love of God if those who know the love of God are acting like they don't know it. And so he warns the churches, Live like you know Jesus. He tells them all, go back. Remember who you were. Remember the gospel. Remember the message that, you, uh, that, that makes you who you are, that brought you out uh, from the rest of the world and that makes you separate and different. Jesus needed these people to get their acts together so that the gospel would go out and so that people will be saved. So that's what we saw in the very first part of the book of Revelation. All right. Now this week, we are going to look at three characters, if you will, in particular. Uh, we're not going to look at ourselves at all, because in a lot of ways, we are integral to the, the story of Revelation, but we're not necessarily players in it so much. And especially this week, because we're looking at three different people. Number one, we're going to look at God. Secondly, we're going to look at Jesus. And thirdly, we're going to look at Satan. Now... I know I've told you this a million times, and I've even said it like twice this morning, but I want to drive this home to you. All right? There is God, and there is Satan, and then there is us in the middle. 
Now, the story is God's story. And it's the story that God, uh, that, that we see, it's a story about how God wants relationship and what he does to have relationship with us. But we, we're like, we are in the middle of this whole thing. And so much of the story hinges on what we do, what we decide, what we choose. It's a fight over our hearts and over our minds and over who we are. And we've seen that over and over again in the narrative, haven't we? We have seen uh, God do amazing things, and we have seen humanity turn from God to worship things that they've made. You know, animals made out of gold, trees, uh, these Asherah poles. We've seen all of these things. We've seen man choose different gods over and over again. And as we've said throughout the story, when man is given the opportunity to choose something besides God, we most often do choose something besides God. And so this morning, we have to, we, I want us to look at this, and I want us to see we are in the middle of this thing, but I want us to look at everything that's happening around us, okay? We're in the middle of it, but we are not the main characters of the story. There is so much happening around humanity. And we're going to start this morning in Revelation chapter 4, so I'd invite you to open up your Bibles there if you uh, have your Bible this morning. It's going to be on the screen behind me as well. From Revelation chapter 4. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes, in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, and the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. All right. Now, when we look at the book of Revelation, what are we tempted to do? We're tempted to want to begin interpreting all of this, right? But remember, the book of Revelation is telling us a story. 
It's telling us what things are like and what is going to happen. So we want to focus on that this morning because there is some weird stuff in this passage. Let's just take a second to try to imagine what it is that John sees, particularly in this four, these four creatures. First of all, he says they are like what? A lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. Okay, so he sees that they're like that, but they each have six. I have never seen an ox with six wings, but they all have six wings. And beyond that, they are covered with eyes. It's creepy. It's strange. But this example, as well as any, tells us just how. Just how indescribable. This is what John is seeing. And where is he? What is he seeing? He's seeing the throne room of God. And in fact, he's seeing God himself. Now, if we say that everything is indescribable, how does John describe God? What does he say about God? Look look back in your Bibles. What does he say about God? How does he describe him? He doesn't. Did you notice that? Instead, what does he say about God? He's like color. He's like, what does he say? He says ruby or jasper. And jasper can be red, yellow, brown, green, and sometimes blue. But we get this idea that there's this red something this jewel that's sitting there on the throne. And there's a rainbow that's like an emerald that's surrounding the throne. And that is what we hear about God. There is no other attribute given to him physically within this part of the story. So, what does that tell us about God? Number one, that he is so indescribable that John cannot even tell us what he is like. There are no words to compare what he sees other than color and light. That's interesting, isn't it? It is. And it's particularly interesting because it stands in contrast to what we saw see in the four creatures who he describes in pretty good detail to where we have, we have an image in our heads, right? It's weird, but it's an image of these really weird-looking creatures, the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle. Now, why is there a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle? What kind of animals are those? Strong, powerful, can be ferocious. These are... These are not, you know, it's not a goldfish, a guinea pig, a hamster, right? It's, no, that's not what this is. These are powerful animals. These are powerful creatures. These are powerful things that are standing around God. And, and what is their job? What is their job? Their job is to say this about God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That is what these creatures do. How much do they do it? 
all the time. That's what they do. And then John says, when they do this, which is all the time, what did the 24 elders do? They fall down and they lay their crowns in front of him. So when are they doing this? All the time. Are they getting back up again and then falling down again? Maybe, maybe not. What is the point? What is the point? It's telling us a story about God. And it's something about God that we don't pay enough attention to in general. Because God loves us, God forgives us, God offers us salvation, yes, but this God that we see on these, in these words, on these pages, is that God, but he's also something else, you see. He is something that is so big, so great, so wonderful, so mighty, so awesome, so indescribable that there are creatures whose very existence is centered around just acknowledging that about him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now we need to define a term here really quick. It's a term that we hear a lot. It's a term that we use a lot. And that term is the word holy. Right? It's a very, it's a very church word. Just like righteousness. Right? That's a, good, that's a good church word right there. But holy is a church word. What does the word holy mean? It means set apart. It means unique. It means different. It means that there is, if something is holy, then it has been set apart and there is one, there is nothing else like it. And that's what God is. He is indescribable. He is set apart. There is nothing like Him. And He is worthy to be worshipped when? All the time. For how long? For eternity. Why? Because He is God. And He sits on the throne. And He is worthy of being worshipped. And these creatures that are around him that John sees, these creatures are there to acknowledge who he is. And here's why I say we underappreciate this point. We say things like God is king. We say things like God is powerful. We sing songs about God being worthy. And honestly, people, it does not even scratch the surface of who God actually is. He is more. He is more worthy than we ever give him the praise and honor for being. And in, you know what drives me crazy about us, about humanity? We sit around and talk about whether God even exists. We sit around and talk about whether he could do this, that, or the other. We talk about the merits of who God could be and couldn't be. We say things like, I could never believe in a God who blah, blah, blah. Or I could never follow a God who da, da, da. Or how could God do this if he blah, blah, blah. You like those terms? It's very specific. I'm allowing you to fill in the blanks right there if you haven't caught that. But what is the truth? If God had never, ever done anything for us, he would still be worthy of every ounce of honor and praise that we have. Every ounce. 
He would be worthy of every moment and every second that we have being dedicated to honoring Him and praising Him. The thing is, though, the thing is, He has done so much for us. This God who is so beyond and so other and so much more, so indescribable, so apart, so worthy of worship and praise, that God is interested in me. That God is interested in you. How is that even possible? That he likes these idiots who sit around and talk about whether he's okay or not. It's a mystery to me that I don't always fully comprehend. And when I see this picture of God sitting on the throne, this indescribable form, where these amazing and magnificent things are worshiping all the time, do you know what I think? I think, God, I underappreciate you drastically for just who you are, for just you being God. When Isaiah had an image of, or a vision of being in the throne room of God in Isaiah chapter 6, he's there and he sees this, this vision of God and he's in the throne room. And do you know what his response is? I am going to die. Because I am a human, an unclean person in the presence of God. And I'm going to die. Because I can't be here. This is too much for me. This is the God that we see in the book of Revelation. That there is nothing in existence like Him. There is nothing to compare to Him. There is nothing that can stand before Him. He is almighty. He is all-powerful. He sits on His throne and things cannot help but fall down before Him. This is our God. This is our God. Now, we see that about him. The next thing, the next thing that we hear about in this story, and we've already, we've already met Jesus in the book of Revelation, but we're going to meet him again, and he, he looks a little bit different this time. So if you have your Bibles, again, turn over to just chapter 5. <clears throat> and we've, we've got this, we have this interesting scenario, Okay? Listen, listen to this. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, 
Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. So they must be getting back up at some point. But they fell down and worshiped. So this tells us something about Jesus and it tells us something that we underappreciate about Jesus. Now, God is set apart. He is holy. He is all-powerful. There is nothing that can touch him. He is this magnificent, indescribable thing. And who are we? We are his creation that he loves. But we are nowhere near him. And then, what kind of choices, again, do we make? If we are given the opportunity to choose something besides God, what do we choose? Something besides God. Anything, right? Which makes us even less worthy to be in front of him. And this is a problem for us. But it's also a problem for God. Because what does God want to do? He wants us to be in intimate relationship with him. And ultimately, where does he want us to be? He wants us to be with him. But look at who we are. But look at who we are. What is going to, what's going to change this situation? The fact that God is on his throne and we are who we are and God wants us to be with him, but... We can't be there and into the story. And, and heaven is asking, here is the scroll. Here's the end of the story. Here's, here's what God has promised and wants to give. And there's a problem. No one can open it. Because no one is worthy to open it. And the mighty angel, I love that mighty is put in there. Why is the word mighty put in there? The mighty angel who says, who can open it? Why is that word put in there? Because the angel is strong, but what can the angel still not do? Still cannot open the scroll. And then into the scene comes Jesus. Into the, and let's, let's just look really quickly again, starting in verse 6 at the description. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And listen to what the lamb did. Took the scroll and immediately did what? Opened the scroll. 
And the story of what God wants to give, the story of what God has promised, what God wants to do is now possible because the Lamb allows the story to be finished in the way that God wants it to be finished. Why is the Lamb worthy? There are two reasons. Why is the Lamb worthy to open the scroll when no one else could open the scroll? Number one, the Lamb sacrificed itself. It gave up its life. But number two, the Lamb triumphed. The Lamb triumphed over death. The Lamb triumphed over what it was that kept us away from God. It defeated it. So that there is only one who can open the scroll. And it is the Lamb who was slain but who triumphed. And when heaven sees the Lamb, look at what happens. They all turn and worship the Lamb. Because heaven is so grateful that the story is going to finish in the way that God wants it to. And then heaven opens up. It opens up. And there are ten thousands upon ten thousands of angels. And they are, sh- they are singing praise to the Lamb. And to God. And then, everything in creation begins to worship the Lamb. And to worship God. Because, because what Jesus has done is so incredible. We have talked about the love of God in Jesus changes everything, and we have undersold that drastically. Because what God has done in Jesus, the, the distance that God has spanned, the mistakes that God has forgiven, the, the things that God has overcome in our lives, it is so wonderful and amazing, the story that God wants to tell. It's so wonderful and amazing that when it comes to fruition in heaven, everything celebrates. Everything celebrates. Like they just can't take it. Do you see what happened? Do you see what happened? You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praised and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And heaven says, Amen. Amen. As amazing as all of this is, this is the scene that we're in. We're still in the middle. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm stunned a little bit by, I'm stunned a little bit by that image, uh, by the heavens opening up and all these angels singing, by, by all of creation recognizing that the Lamb is worthy. And, and the fact that, as I said, we're, we still live in this space where we're trying to decide whether we want to follow God or not. Or whether God is real or not. Or whether we can believe in him or not. Why, why are we still in the middle of all of this? Well, it's just how humanity is. I mean, we could argue that. We've seen it from the very beginning. It's just how we are. We 
go back and forth. We're unre- it's why we need a Savior. I, I, all that is true. But there is something else that is happening that is making the situation difficult. As, as, over, uh, as overpowering and wonderful and amazing and just awe-inspiring as all this is, we, we are being influenced by Satan. And I hate to tell this to you because it's painfully true. We are, we are easy targets. We are easy targets. And we're going to see just how easy of a target we are when we look at what it is that Satan is doing, what his plan is, because he has a plan. Now, the first thing that I want us to know, turn over to uh, Revelation chapter 12. So ultimately, ultimately Satan wants to win, right? He wants to win, but what does winning look like for him? Can, can Satan overcome God? No. Now, I want you to understand just how much Satan cannot overcome God, okay? I want you to understand just how impossible it is for Satan to, do, to overcome God in any way, shape, or form. Listen to this. Uh, they're talking about uh, the war uh, and, and different things that are going, but in, in verse 7, Revelation 12, 7 through 9, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Okay, so there's a fight in heaven, and it's the forces of God versus the forces of Satan. And who wins? God does. Now, there's something I want you to notice. Who fights against Satan and his forces? The angels do. Michael and the angels. Here's why I think this is important for you to note. God doesn't even enter the fight. Jesus doesn't even, he's not in, the, he's not in that fight. The angels are capable of taking care of the dragon. God doesn't even have to go there. Okay? So, what does that tell us ultimately about Satan? Yeah, he doesn't stand a chance. Like, there is no way that Satan can win. There is no way that he can defeat God. There is only one way that Satan can gain any kind of victory. What is that one way? He turns us away from God. And we've said this from the very beginning, right? God wants to have a relationship with us. Satan wants to turn us away from God. And here we are. In the middle. So, he lost, he was cast down, and he knows he can't take God off the throne, but he can change us, he can affect us. Now, turn, uh, if you would, to Revelation chapter 13. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but it had feet like those of a bear and mouth like that of a lion. 
The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Now, okay, that's a lot. Admittedly, that's a lot. So, we're going to ask the same question though, that we've been asking with these other things. What story is this telling? What's the story that it's telling? So, Satan has been cast down. He's been defeated. But then what is his one goal? To turn us away from God. And as we see here, to control us. To control humanity. Now, that's scary enough in and of itself. And it talks about how much power there is. That the dragon and these two beasts, that they have all this power in this place. And that ultimately they are, they're oppressing humanity. But there's, there's something worse than that that's going on. Because we know from the Bible, we know from our study of Scripture, that what can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Nothing. Height, depth, nothing. Angels, demons, nothing. So what's happening here? Well, what has always been humanity's biggest problem when it comes to worshiping God? And we've talked about we always choose something else. Do you know what that is? Itself. But there's a term for it that we haven't used a whole lot recently. The term is idolatry. Idolatry, which basically means choosing something else, whatever that something else is. So Satan wants to influence us to choose something else. When he approached Adam and Eve in the garden, he said, what did God tell you you could or couldn't do? Well, we just can't eat from that tree. 
And if we do, we'll die. You're not going to die. If you eat from that tree, you will be like God. So the very first thing that we did was chose to make ourselves, put ourselves in the place of God, to raise ourselves up. And then we see, like time and time again throughout the story, we see humanity worshiping other things. So how is Satan going to convince us in this time of his defeat and God's great victory, how is he going to convince us to worship something else? It's simple. It's simple. He creates something that looks like God, but isn't God. So the dragon comes down, and he takes the place of God the Father. He's the, he's the head honcho. But then he brings out of the sea what? A beast. And what is one of the characteristics of this beast? It seems to have had a fatal wound. But it's still alive and healed. Who is that? That's Jesus. And then there's another beast that comes out. And guess what this beast does? It points back to the dragon and the first beast. And it does all kinds of signs and wonders. It even causes fire to come down from heaven, which is what? The Holy Spirit. Satan knows that we will choose something besides God. And this image that we see in Revelation chapter 13 is Satan mimicking God. But here's the, here's the, just the thing about this, right? Satan does it in such a way that is overpowering and showy and these giant things, talking idols. Like, he does it in such a way that it convinces, it convinces humanity that it's real. And humanity falls down and they worship the beasts and the dragon. And once humanity starts worshiping the dragon and the beasts, then what? Everything goes to hell. It does. People become slaves. They're trapped. There's no freedom. They can't even, <laughs> they can't even go to the store and buy something. Unless, because the dragon has taken full control of the earth. That's, that's, uh, it's scary. It's scary. But to me, it's also convicting. Um, it's convicting because when we look at the story and we wonder sometimes, we have wondered, I should say, about, you know, how could the Israelites have been delivered from Egypt and then forgotten about God? How could they do this and how could they do that? But the truth that I think we see in this story is that, one, we are susceptible to influence from the evil one. But two, Satan is not dumb. And he will influence us in any way he can, including taking what we know is true and altering it enough so that we buy into it. So we buy into it. 
There are, it, it's what, it breaks my heart about this. Here is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here is the dragon, the beast that was slain, and the second beast. And they copy God, and we believe it. Over the real God who is indescribable on his throne. If this were the end of the story, it would be a terrible ending to the story. It's so bad. And I don't want it to be like this. I don't want us to be in the middle of these things. I don't want us to be, to fall for this stuff. I want us to, like John, to see things like they are. To see God indescribable on his throne. To, to see heaven open up and worship Jesus for all that he's done. But when I read this part, I just think to myself, how do we overcome this? And here's the thing. We don't. We don't. But the Lamb has opened the scroll. And God's story is going to be told. God's story is going to be told. And as we look next week, <laughs> at the very end of that, you're going to see how God turns this whole situation on its head and does something so amazing and so wonderful that all of this goes away. It goes away. All of this... What do we do with this? Well, it's a lot. It's a lot. But there's something I want you to recognize. All of this energy, all of this effort, all of this pushing and pulling is put into you. Into you. Into controlling your heart. Into changing what you think. Into pushing you one direction or another. And as far as we see Satan go to deceive us, I have to tell you that God has gone further than that to save us. I feel like I need to say that again because that felt like something that, as far as Satan has gone to deceive us and to overpower us, God has gone further to save us. And he sits on the throne and Jesus has opened the scroll. And God's story is going to be told no matter how many beasts rise up out of the ocean. Amen? Amen. And we, church, as those who know this God and this Jesus, we who are at the middle of this story that God is telling, we who are the object of his love and forgiveness and salvation, we have something to tell this world. Because if we do not, they will be left to that horrible end where they can't see the truth. But we know the truth. And we have a God who loves us in such a way that he overcomes all of those things for us. So this week, how do we take this message and do something with it this week? Here's what I would like to just challenge you to do. 
I want you this week, every moment you think about God, every moment church, Jesus, God crosses your mind, you need to say, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. All praise and honor and glory be to God who gives us life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for all that you have done because, God, we face a challenge. Every day, God, we are challenged to choose you, to honor you, to live a life that glorifies you. God, sometimes we are really good at acknowledging you, and other times we ignore you completely. God, help us not to be deceived. Help us to see and know and understand the truth. And Father, may we as those who are given victory over the beasts in our lives, may we tell others that you are worthy and that Jesus is writing the end of the story, allowing your ending to be told. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. If you have any need for prayers or encouragement this morning, you want to know this God that loves you uh, in such an amazing way that we could just never even wrap our minds around. We invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.